verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are coming to, really, I would say, one of the most, um, really one of the most important chapters uh, in the Bible, as if you, as if you could say that, right? Um, it really is a standout chapter and part of Abram's life. Um, so if you're, you're watching online today or you're here, uh, especially if you're online, um, don't miss this week and next week. If there were two Sundays that you would want to hear in Genesis, it's this week and next week. Um, it is the foundation of our, our faith. Um, so if you're tuning in online or you're here somewhere in our building, um, don't miss next week. It's going to wrap up really what we start today, and the story's incomplete without the end of this chapter. Well, what a, we've been saying, I feel like I say this every week, what a tumultuous week it's been uh, in 2020. We're saying that all the time. Um, you know, regardless of what political party you identify with this week, what a weird week. Every morning was filled with new headlines and tweets and uh, new sound bites and new opinions. And, I, you know, I think as I think through 2020, as we come to this passage today, you know, it's reminded us, I think, of something that we have known to be true all along, but we don't like to remind ourselves of. And that is that we live in a terribly fallen world. I mean, we live in a fallen world, a world that is riddled with sin through and through. Now, that doesn't mean that every person or every institution or every group is as evil as it could be or person could be. That's not what the, the idea of total depravity means. But it does mean that every part, every piece of us, every part of uh, every group or institution is touched by sin in every place. That's what that means. That's what a fallen world means. You know, we've had a pretty comfortable, I would say as the church and even uh, in our nation, pretty comfortable latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st. But when you look at this past year, I think even the cheeriest optimists would be tempted to say, what in the world is going on? Even those faithful, ardent disciple of Christ would be tempted this season to even ask God, what are you doing, God? What are you doing in this world? What are you doing amongst your people? 
What are you doing in the church? Are you sure you know what you're doing, God? Are you even tempted that way? How could 2020 work for the church's good and work for my good with everything that's taken place in this year? As wave after wave of strange occurrences and trials have come kind of crashing over the bow of our boat. But this is life. These things will come at you. And if 2020, you haven't had the personal trials, we just can think, you know, 2021 is coming, another year of living in this fallen world. So how can you live? How can you live in such a way that you could actually flourish in the storm? Overcome the trial and not let it overcome you or sink you. Did you know as we come to Abraham today, did you know this, that all three of the major you know, religions of the world look to Abram. Do you know that? Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. You put that together, that's, you know, most of the planet looks to Abram in some way for something. This man Abram, one who stands his ground, his principles, his beliefs, even when on the surface it looked like a raging storm, his roots were sunk into something really deep. Like an anchor for the soul, Hebrews says, when talking of Abram. A hope that was set before him. The verse says this in, in six, uh, verse 619 of Hebrews. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul he had. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We'll come back to that verse at the end. But here's the truth we'll see in the life of Abram. Even in the midst of all this firm standing that he had, and, and conviction, and faith, and holding on to the promises. And it's the problem and challenge for every human being on the planet. Doubt. Doubt. Even with the hope set before him. Even with the promises he had that Abram has been given so far. Even with his recent military victory we talked about in chapter 14. And the miraculous victory he had over uh, Keter Laomer. Abram is still riddled with fear and doubt. Have you had a dose of that in your life this year? Today, maybe. Past weeks. The pattern would continue, not just in Abraham, the pattern would continue with God's people in the Bible. You think of the story of Exodus. They are brought out of slavery in Egypt. God delivers his people after 400 years and they see these miraculous deliveries. A sea opens in front of their eyes. Bread rains down from heaven. Water comes from a rock for them. And how do they respond? Oh, Moses, it would be better for us to die in Egypt than wander out here. The pattern continued for God's people. Fear and doubt. You know, and us today, we know of the certainty of the resurrection, and yet, God, are you sure? Will you be with me through this illness? Or are you sure I'll be happy enough if I just have only you and everything else gets stripped away? Are you sure, God, that you're enough for me? Are your commandments good for me, God? Or are they meant to oppress me and take away opportunity for joy and happiness? Doubt. So our questions we want to answer today are these. Is doubt allowed for the believing Christian. And what does God do with our doubt 
when it shows up. Well, this morning, as I said, we're looking at the beginning of one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, Genesis 15, and the covenant and promises to Abram and God's gentle forbearance with the doubt of this man of faith we've called him, because that's the reality. So let's begin to look at it by looking at the reality of fear and doubt in the life of a believer. This is a reality. What we see here at the beginning of chapter 15 is a man who is still wondering if God is going to come through on his promises. Abram's still doubting here in this moment. We begin in the beginning of this chapter with Abram in fear. How do we know that? Because the scripture begins with, after these things, meaning the battle of chapter 14, after this great victory, God says, fear not. God knows his heart. Abram must have been fearing. He says, fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. I will protect you. I've got you. It's okay. It's possible in this moment Abram feared that the armies would come for revenge. Who knows? He's got ample time after the kind of the post-war quiet of chapter 14 to think through things and contemplate. And a lot of times our greatest, after our greatest victories, tend to come our greatest anxieties, temptations to sin or doubt. Sometimes it's on the heels of a great success or victory in life. We find ourselves at our lowest point even. And we see Abram here again. Abram's faith, again, has been this series of great starts and then these false starts or falterings or or failings of faith, you could even say. I mean, his faith has looked throughout even so far these few chapters like the kind of up and down rising graph line of the stock market during COVID time. This is Abram's faith, up and down and up and down and up and down. That's who he is, and that's what we see here. Maybe he was just tired. Maybe you're tired today. Maybe he was just worn out after this victory and wondering, you know, God, I still can't see. How will your promises come true for me? How will I survive? You know, right here in this passage today, we have one of the unique kind of uh, constructs of words in the Bible. Actually, and in the first five books of the Bible, it's the only place where it really takes place. It says, uh, it says this in verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to Abram. It's the only place in the first five books, they'll call the Pentateuch, that Moses wrote, where this is said. He's the only one who gets this. The word of the Lord came to Abram. What this means is that it's probably here a direct revelation or even an audible voice that Abram gets here. He's the only one in all the first five books of the Bible we hear it. An audible voice he gets from God here. Nobody else gets this opportunity. And what do we see from Abram? He's doubting God. He's doubting God. It's really one of two parts we're going to talk about, we're going to look at of what it means to, to doubt. There's two parts to it. And the first one is Abram truly doubts God, even, on the getting, even in the moment of getting an audible voice from him. The word of the Lord comes to Abram. And when he gets it, he doesn't say, you know, hey, thanks, God. I was getting a bit nervous. I think I'm good to go now. That's not what we see. No, what does he do? He unleashes his heart back to God, and he says in verses 2 and 3, basically, what will I get out of this? 
what will I get out of this? Will you give me an heir? My wife is barren. Will you give me what you've said? And how? Right now, my heir is my servant whose name is Eleazar. Basically like a slave. He doubts. As he's getting an audible voice from God, he doubts. And what does God do? He goes even further and takes him outside to show him even more promises, which we're going to talk about more in a moment. But Abram responds, jumping ahead after he goes outside to verse 8. He says, yeah, but how can I really know you're going to give me the land? He gets two audible words in this vision, and yet he says, but God, I can't be sure. How can I really know what is true to be true? How can I know? And I think what we've got going on here, and it's important for us to point out, that the Bible is not a fairy tale of over-successful people. Do you know that? Who always get things right, who never waver in faith, and never disobey the Lord. The Bible reads more like a reality TV show, if you're honest. It really does. And we're, it's actually going to get worse in Genesis way before it gets better. It's, it's raw, in other words. It's, it's, it's realistic. Here we have the man, the man that set out on a journey to a land he didn't know that God was going to show him, and he starts with amazing faith. In fact, our subtitle is we're calling him the man of faith, the father of faith in our series. He's won his wife back from Pharaoh. Do you remember that? He slaughtered the enemy, the kings, and, and yet here he is back on his heels again. And if this excellent man of faith, the father of faith, responds this way, how do you think you and I are going to do? It shows us here in Abram's life the inevitability of doubt in the lives of God's people. It's inevitable. It will never totally go away this side of heaven. We're always tempted to doubt and, and prone to wander, the song says, prone to leave the, the Lord I love, prone to fret, pr- prone to catastrophize, making it you know, bigger than it is. And everyone's been doing it all week, haven't they? Everyone's been doing it all week long. Worst case scenario, worst outcome, worst case aftermath, worst case speculation, Our first problem with doubt and that we need to recognize is doubting God at times is inevitable. We live in a fallen world and we're still battling our fallen nature. Maybe you're watching online and you're here here today and you, you haven't come to trust Christ yet and you're wondering, how can I trust God? I just doubt God. How can I trust God? You know, what will he ask of me? I know what I want, but I don't know what does he want from me. Or maybe you're here today and you've already launched out in faith, trusting Jesus, even as Abram launched out on his journey. But just know that this is the pattern of your life. You just know it. I take a couple steps forward in faith, and I take a few back in fear. I'm not sure God is going to use this for my good. It doesn't feel good. In fact, I would never choose to even go through this. Or maybe for you, you, you just challenged with, there is no way God could work in my suffering or be involved in my suffering. Or, you know, I don't trust him to give enough to give up control. I'm holding on to this one little piece of my life and, and keeping his grubby little hands off of it. Maybe that's you. 
Now, if that were the only part of doubt, doubting God, you know, we could stand here today, go through the promises again, talking about his death on the cross to prove it for you, but that's not the only part. Not only do we doubt God, what's the other piece of that? We doubt ourselves. We doubt ourselves a lot. So our next slide there, doubting ourselves. Okay, well, all right, God, maybe uh, I trust that God's going to keep up his end of the bargain, but I don't know about me. I don't know about my end of the bargain. I don't know what I'm going to respond or how I'm going to respond to what God wants from me. We also doubt ourselves. In fact, we could almost be certain to say, I know I will fail him at times. How could I not? Look at Abram, the man of faith. Or maybe you're somebody who thinks, you know, I've really got to clean up my act before God will accept me. I just doubt he could accept me the way I am. I doubt that. Look at me. I've got to, I've got to get myself together before I can really even approach him or go back to church or whatever the thought is. I can't believe I'm a person like this. We doubt ourselves too. But here's the thing. Abram surely didn't clean up his act. In this moment here, even in verse 8, he even borders on blasphemy here, responding to God after these words and these promises, this vision of the sky. He's brutally open and honest. He's not cleaning up his act. He shows his cards with his fear and doubt about God and himself. And that's how you become an Abram. You honestly wrestle with your doubts. So doubt is inevitable in the ups and downs of a Christian's life. And it comes in two parts, doubting God and doubting ourselves. But let's look at how God responds because that's most important, isn't it? How does God respond when we do doubt? That's most important. So let's look at it. We're going to see this, the faith-fueling, tender response of gentle promises of uh, and immeasurable grace. That's a mouthful. Faith-fueling, tender response of gentle promises and immeasurable grace. God responds to Abram in this moment in such a balanced way. You know, there are two ways we respond to doubt in the world. There's two ways we respond, and they're different than the way God responds. Here's the two ways that Pretty much you could categorize everybody in the world falls into how we respond to doubt. The first way is this. There's the more traditional way to respond to doubt, where somebody doubts or I'm doubting or somebody we know, we say, don't, don't doubt. Don't, don't question. I mean, don't question authority. And you might think that would be how God would respond to Abram. How dare you question my integrity, Abram? He had every right to respond that way. How dare you question my authority, Abram? We would think he might respond that way. And if we follow that more kind of traditional response to doubt, just like, hey, don't doubt, just stuff it, forget about it, don't worry about it, it's all going to work out in the end. If we respond that way, if we create a church like that, where doubt is discouraged or shamed or where no one's allowed to express their struggles and fears and real, real doubts, we'll turn our young people off, I know that, <laughs> And we'll live in a kind of a fantasy world of hypocrisy, just pretending that we've all got it together and nobody ever doubts and nobody ever struggles with anything. And we don't want a church like that. That's not real life. And I know we don't want to turn off our young people because 
they definitely have real doubts and questions. And people will be afraid to ask questions, and you know what? Then we'll never get the opportunity to give answers. If any church has a culture where real doubt and struggle can't be expressed, like Abram's doing with God. That's the one response, the kind of more traditional, ignore doubt, you know, how dare you ask the question, or, or just, you know, just believe, don't ask any more questions. That's the more traditional. Well, the other end is kind of the more, I call it the more progressive, more modern approach to doubt. It's, you know what, doubt, it's a virtue, you know, it's a virtue. You can't really trust anything or anyone anyways, and, you know, the journey's just really about asking the questions, and it doesn't actually matter if you get an answer. It's more of the kind of, a little more progressive kind of view of doubt. That, that's, that's what true living is. Doubt everything and never close your mind around anything. Skepticism, you could say, or, or cynicism. But this response ignores the truth of God's Word and the thoughtful answers that He gives us all over the place. Neither of them actually deal with doubt correctly. One just ignores it, stuffs it, shames it. The other embraces it fully and says, you know, that's where I want to live. Just doubt everything. Neither of them address it, doubt or worry or fear appropriately. But what does God do? Because that's what matters. What does God do? Here's one thing. He never encourages doubt, like we might see over here, but he also doesn't just flat out condemn Abram either, does he here? He doesn't encourage doubt and say embrace it. And he doesn't condemn Abram here. He challenges him. He challenges him. The disciple Thomas had a nickname. Do you know what it was? Doubting Thomas, yeah. Doubting Thomas. He said to the other disciples in his greatest probably moment of doubt, unless I see the scars on his hands, Unless I see the the piercing in his side, I will never, he said, believe. And how did Jesus respond? Thomas, peace be with you. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Do you see what this means? Jesus doesn't condemn doubters. He welcomes them. He welcomes Thomas in, and he takes them seriously, actually, and then he gently challenges them. That's what Jesus is doing with Thomas here. Our kids in this church, our youth in this church, we got a couple in the room today, our youth, your grandkids, your kids you're raising, they need to know that the church can be and should be an absolutely safe place to express doubt. We've got to offer them that and not be afraid of it. And they need to feel that in our families. What questions do you have? Where are you doubting? Because guess what? When they go out into the world... They're going to get this view of doubt. It's celebrated. It's affirmed. It's a virtue. Don't ever settle your mind on anything. The church is the place where doubters are to be loved and listened to and then gently answered and challenged. 
And if we do have the truth, what do we have to fear from any question that can come along? Even if you don't have the answer to it, personally. And if we do that inside the church, you know what else we're doing? If we create a culture like that inside any church, we're also preparing ourselves to go out and be able to respond to the doubts of those in the world, the doubts they have. It's, the, um, it's the, really the theme of the Sunday adult seminar we're doing, the reason for God. It's, it's a place to explore and think about, how would I respond to that? And it's okay to sit down with somebody and hear their doubts, even from a fellow believer, and not panic. It's okay. That's what Jesus does with Thomas. That's what God did with Abram, and he gives him his word. Take a look back to the text now, verses 4 and 5. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram, I promise you, you will have your own son. He'll be your true heir. He gives Abram his bare word, we've been calling it, all throughout this Genesis series. He gives him his bare word. Trust my word, Abram. Trust my promises, Abram. And he keeps repeating it over and over again, the promises. And that's the pattern of the entire Old Testament and New Testament. That's the pattern of repeating the promises over and over again. Why is that? Because those repetition of those promises, they fuel our faith. They become fuel for the fire of our faith and our hearts. And so our application here, and a couple subpoints of this number two, here's our first one. Our application to deal with doubt is that we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the promises of the gospel over and over and over and over again. That's why we talk about it, I hope, almost every Sunday. We've got to hear these things over and over and over. If Abram needed to, we do too. And God is so gracious to repeat them over and over again, isn't he? Are you worried and doubting? Do you still have fear about this election? Are you doubting whether you're secure with God this morning? Is there doubt creeping in that he really loves you? What do we know to be true? If you're a follower of Christ, you're an adopted child of God, adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ, paid for, adopted, and so wed, unified, sealed to Christ that when the Father looks at you, he sees his perfect Son. That's what we know. And to prove it, he rose from the grave, from the dead for you. But see, as I heard one commentator say this week, we're we're like the little boy whose truck is broken. And he's just crying and bawling and moaning and holding it up for someone to fix it. It's just broken. And as he's crying, his dad says, hey, a phone call just came in. And a distant relative has just left you $10 million. She could buy all the trucks you want. As the little boy responds, fix this truck, fix this truck. He'll just cry louder because he wants the one that's in front of him fixed. 
He doesn't realize that what he has in the inheritance. He only sees what's right in front of his eyes, right in front of him, and that, that's it. He wants this fixed. That's us. Sure, he knows maybe that he's got this inheritance coming, but does he know it emotionally? Does he know it experientially? Does he know it in his affections of his heart? At the level that will transform him from the inside out. We need to hear the promises over and over and over until we know we know what is true is true. Till we know we know what is true is true. They fuel our faith, these promises. It's the first application of what we see taking place here between God and Abram. And Abram was pretty alone, if you think about it, in his faith journey. Sure, he had some family, but I mean, as the leader of this family, he was called to go out and really blaze a trail in faith. He was pretty alone. But we are not. We are not alone. And so our second way we want to take this and apply this to us is that we not only need to hear the gospel promises of God, we need to hear them in the context of the faith encouragement of others in the church. We need to hear them together. We cannot, we cannot go it alone on this journey of faith. I think for some of us, not all of us, but I think for some of us, this coronavirus time of worship and isolation has shown us how much we need each other. I think I said it last week, but hearing your voices sing from the front row here has done more for my life and soul and heart in the last few months than anything, really. It has. It, it fuels our faith. It fuels us on. And I think some of us have realized that during this time, but I'm not sure everyone has. Many of us have realized through this time, I can't go it alone. I cannot do this alone this life of faith. It's too hard. It's too difficult. I can't do it alone. There are days when I just need the faith of my brother in Christ to come alongside me because I've hardly got anything, I've got anything left. I've got nothing left. And say to me, I know you were down, but Jesus, but Jesus. I know you were doubting, but Jesus. I know you're scared, but Jesus, that's the beauty of the church. That's the gift of what we have here. Or as I said, when we hear each other's voices singing in the sanctuary, there are days I know when you come to church, or maybe even watching at home, there's a roadblock of doubt that keeps you from singing, and it's those days, do you know what you do? You listen to the voice of the brother and sister down the row or the chair next to you. That's another reason. That's why we're here. And your soul begins to be lifted through their voice, through their joy, through their faith. And if you've gone through this season of hindered worship and not felt this loss, you should ask yourself the question, why? You should ask yourself that question. At this point, my hope is the only thing that would be someone keeping someone after we've been apart so long from regathering would be a compromised immune system. Don't let anything else keep you away. 
you need each other. We need each other. We need to hear each other, see each other's faces, encourage one another in faith. We need each other desperately to hear God's gentle promises and what do we call it? Immeasurable grace. Because that's what it is. This is all immeasurable grace from God to Abram. So we hear it a lot, but you know, sometimes we just need to see. It's our final application here. Sometimes we just need to see it. And this is perhaps, I think, one of the most gracious, one of the most gracious responses in all of the Bible. Here God puts his arm around Abram and he takes him outside. He walks with him wherever they were, maybe he was in his tent, but he goes outside here and he has him look up at the sky. Do you know what happens when we look at a starry sky? Uh, researchers have even studied this. Can you believe it? Yeah, of course, they study everything. Like, I mean, you'll find these studies and you're like, who's thinking about this? There's actually been some studies that have been done in really, you know, reputable colleges and places of research. They've done some studies on what happens to people when they look up at a starry sky. And it's really interesting. Here's a quote from a study. They said, you know, participants were shown images of the night sky. And afterwards, they reported being less certain of their own opinions and less interested in establishing separation between themselves and even political opponents, they said. Just after and by looking up at the starry sky. So in other words, looking at the stars puts us in our place and makes us think about others in this big world. And I guess you wouldn't be surprised, right, as, a, as someone who believes that God created the world, that by looking out into the night sky, those of you maybe who love to go out and camp or go out and hunt, you get the best, pick, you get the best uh, views of that, away from the lights of towns and cities. Isn't that incredible? Even as our graphic shows us here. That's why we chose that picture, looking up at the starry sky. And in some ways, that is what God did here. Every time you look up, Abram, you know that you'll not be alone. I will make you an offspring like the stars. Which actually, there are more stars visible, or there are more stars, do you know that, than dust on the earth? Do you know that? It's true, actually. Look it up. Look it up later today. There are more stars, actually, than pieces of dust on the earth. And that's God's word to Abram. You will not be alone. Just look up. So now we get to complete our slide from a few weeks back. Do you remember it? It was this slide of, of God telling Abram, Abram, look north, look south, look east and west. All your eyes see, I'll give it to you. And then a little time later, he said to him, Abram, look down at the dust of the earth. I'm going to make your offspring like that dust. And today in chapter 15, Abram, look up. Look up. The stars, you see that? Your descendants are going to be more than the stars. So believe, Abram. Every direction Abram could look possibly in his world in that day, north, south, east, west, up, down, were promises from God to remind him. Believe, Abram. That's a measurable grace. That's immeasurable. You can't measure that. North, south, east, west, up, down, Abram. Anywhere you go, my promises are there for you. And reminders will be there. 
And what do we see? Abram is speechless. He stands there in silence, and as verse 6 says, he believed the Lord Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believes in this moment. It's not that he hasn't believed already, but here it's reaffirmed for us. He believes what happened. It's not as if all of a sudden Abram felt like Superman, yes, I've got it, I've got the faith, I'm going out, or faith in himself maybe in that moment. He had the promises and character of God. That's what happened. That's why it matters that we talk about God. That's why it matters that Christ is the center of our sermons. That's why it matters that Jesus is the center of your life and your relationships, because that's what drove Abram to this belief. Let's look just for a couple minutes to close at Abram's salvation. The voice of God here in this moment molds him, shapes him, so that he organizes his entire life, his thoughts, and his heart around the faithful voice of God. He believes, the text says. says it as simple as possible. He believed. And here is the most incredible moment in Abram's history, really, and what's going to follow on next week. It's through that belief. Hear, this, hear these words. Through that belief that God counts credits, provides, imputes, whatever word you want to use, righteousness to Abram. He didn't do righteousness. He believed and was credited righteousness. Remember we said in the summer outside, we don't achieve it, we receive it. We did the Beatitudes. He received the righteousness of God through belief. This is the landmark verse and passage that Paul uses in Romans 4. Jot that down. Maybe read that passage later today. It's in our life group questions. Galatians 3, to describe New Testament faith and salvation. That's why we say faith alone through grace alone. So how did he get this faith? How do you get faith? Even this faith? Even though it's a real exercise of Abram's will, it's personal faith, but even this faith was a gift from God. It was a grace. When Peter asked, was asked by Jesus, well, who do you believe that I am, Peter? Who do you believe? What do you, what, what's your faith about me, Jesus? Or about Jesus, he asked Peter. Who do you believe that I am? He responds, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Excellent, Peter. You have said what is true. You've exercised your own will. It's come from you, and yet this is how Jesus responds. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter didn't manufacture his faith. His flesh and blood could not manufacture faith. Who gave him the faith? My Father who is in heaven. God. Even his faith was a gift from God. Paul says it in Ephesians as well, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace, we got the verse popping up, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so no one may boast. If anything could be called a work and claimed to be credited for our own, it would be our belief, wouldn't it? 
But here Paul says this, grace through, uh, been saved through faith, grace through faith, this is not your own doing. This, even the faith, is a free gift from God. How did Abram come into a right relationship with God? Which is really that righteousness. A right relationship with God. Belief. Belief. Belief alone is what brought him that. It's a belief that God provided to his soul. Now, it's a belief that doesn't remain alone. We're saved by faith alone, but faith never ends up being alone. We live for it after that and for our God. But here's what we see. Abram's salvation is our salvation. Abram's salvation is our salvation. And everyone from the start of history to the finish of, the, of this world will be saved by grace through faith. Abram believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he sunk the anchor of his soul into those promises. The steadfast hope for our soul to anchor in. And what or who is that? We began with this verse. We have this sure, Hebrews 6.19, and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The verse goes on, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's our hope. That's our anchor. The great king priest has been talking about all along through the life of Abraham. And he's not going to even show up for 2,000 years. But that was Abraham's hope. That is our hope. The promises and deliverance of God. Next week, next week, don't miss next week. If you miss next week, you miss the, the core of what God does still, even with Abram almost blaspheming him. Yeah, but I can't be sure, God. How can I really know? Don't miss the covenant next week. Let's pray. Jesus, we are like Abram, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And yet you are so gracious to patiently and tenderly work with our doubts. With your promises, again, through the gospel, through each other, through our relationships, through the church, and through your immeasurable grace. So God, let us be free to wrestle with our doubts, like the man Abram did, to wrestle even with you, to bring our questions to you, to bring our doubts to others in the church, and let us together Know that we can find the answers in your word as Abram did. Jesus, encourage us in our doubt today. Give us hope beyond what we could manufacture ourselves. A peace that passes all understanding in the midst of this sin-tainted world. And let us move out because we have the answers in faith and hope to a world that desperately needs you. Let us respond in gratitude of worship. In Christ's name, amen.